0: Welcome to Family Room Discussions, where you invite me, Dalton Anderson, to your Come, Follow Me study, and we discuss ideas, questions, and insights to the week's lesson. I am not a church historian or a scripture scholar. I am your average saint seeking to build my faith in Christ and deepen my testimony of the gospel and the scriptures, and I have found that by discussing Come, Follow Me with others, it helps me to do just that. My sincere hope is that you will allow me to join in your gospel dialogue. With that introduction, let's start this Family Room Discussion. Sisters and brothers, family, and friends, this is episode 21, following along with a faithful, a just, and a wise steward, Doctrine and Covenants section 51 to 57. In the introduction, it says, for church members in the 1830s, gathering the saints and building the city of Zion were spiritual as well as temporal works. I want to stop there. I was thinking about that, and I mean, isn't isn't building our home now, isn't that the same? Um... Is it not both a physical and spiritual endeavor, uh, or temporal? I should say spiritual and temporal. I know for Lex and I, as we've been in our home that we live in now, um, we have been working on our yard for since we moved in, essentially, and our and our house in general. But definitely, we put a ton of work into our yard. And just this weekend, we had uh, we had these these dead trees that had been in our yard since the beginning. <clears throat> And, uh, and I am a super stubborn person. I don't know why I have a tough time asking for help. I never want to ask for help. I want to just do everything on my own. And so I had decided that I was going to be able to get these tree stumps out on my own. I was literally going to dig and rip them up. And if you've ever had to dig up a tree stump, you would then know that I was a fool to think that it was even remotely possible for me to be able to do this. So, um, what I had done is I kept going, I, I would dig and try and dig as deep down as I could cut out as many of the roots as I could get to. And then I would just let the sun kind of scorch what was like left. And then I would come back a week later, keep going and getting more and more and more. And it, and it was working, but, uh, but also it wasn't like, it was, it wasn't, I wasn't getting anything done. It was going nowhere. So Lex, because she's, significantly more humble than I am and willing to ask for help. She ended up talking to a neighbor and they said, well, you should just come and ask me. I've got some chains that we could wrap around the roots and, and rip it out. So she did this last week and that's what we did. And they helped me rip these, uh, these two deep tree stumps out and we got them. And it was just like, it was a moment where I sat there and I thought, why don't I just ask for help from the beginning? And, and I know why. I know why I did. And I honestly would have been fine to continue this long road of going like bit by bit to finally get it. But uh, it was just this moment where I was like, it's done. I can move on to other tasks at hand because there's still so much left to do on our yard to get it where, you know, we want it. And so I was, as I was thinking about this and the work that we've been doing on our house, it's both a temporal project for sure because like I said we've been doing a ton of physical labor to especially to get our house like summer ready we really want to be able to have a house that we can host people where people want to be and and want to come over and so we've been working really hard on that and Lex is like just doing amazing things with our backyard and she has a garden and and she works on the lawn and all this stuff and it's just been a really fun project like it's multiple projects, but it's been a really fun project to work on as a couple and as a family. And as I was thinking about that, I was also thinking how spiritually we've also been working on our home. That, one, these temporal projects have brought us all closer together. We have a common goal, uh, her and I, and then also the kids get involved and want to help out to the, you know, the best that they can. But we're also sp- trying to spiritually build our home that people feel at peace when they're here, that they, they feel the spirit. That's something that's extremely important. And so uh, both Lex and I, but primarily Lex, has really spent a lot of energy to to create an environment conducive for the Spirit. In our living room, we have a, pic- a giant picture of Christ with the family proclamation and uh, the, what is it? The living Christ? Is that what it is? You know, the other one. And then also uh, the recent, the restoration. Well, and those are in our living room and we have a picture of Joseph Smith, we have a picture of the temple, uh, we have a picture of our family, all the things that are at the center of the gospel for us. And that's just in our living room. And then obviously she's decorated the house the same. And so it really is a temporal and a spiritual work for us and we're always finding ways to to improve and to get better. And so right away from the beginning of this introduction, I stopped and I thought, you know, just like building the city of Zion is both a spiritual and temporal work, are we building our own Zions right now? And so that's a question I pose to you. Uh, You know, how are you doing that? How are you going about building your own Zion just with your own family and in your own home? Continuing on, with many practical matters to address, someone needed to purchase and distribute land where the saints could settle. Someone needed to print books and other publications. And someone needed to run a store to provide goods to those in Zion. In the revelations recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 51 to 57, the Lord appointed it, and instructed people to handle these tasks, and he identified Independence, Missouri, as the center place of Zion. But while skills in such things as purchasing land, printing, and running a store are valuable to the temporal work of building Zion, these revelations also teach that the Lord desires his saints to become spiritually worthy to be called a Zion people. He calls each of us to be a faithful, a just, and a wise steward, having a contrite spirit, standing fast in our appointed responsibilities. If we can do that, regardless of our temporal skills, the Lord can use us to build Zion and he will hasten the city in its time. So I love there that as long as we're doing our best, regardless of our actual skills and abilities, the Lord can use us and he will use us. That's something that I have to constantly remind myself to have faith in, uh, in that, that I'm not great at everything and I'm not even great at a lot of things. There are a few things that I know I have gifts and abilities in. And to remember that as long as I have something, anything to bring to the table, even if it's just me showing up, the Lord can use me. And so that helps me whenever I get down on myself or, or feeling like you know I'm not bringing enough to the table or someone else would certainly be far more valuable in the Lord's work that we are all necessary in this work. We truly are. And so keeping that in mind helps me to, to really keep my faith strong but also kind of put up a fortification against Satan and the lies that he constantly tells. In the first section, the Lord wants me to be a faithful, just, and wise steward. If you were a member of the church in 1831, you might have been invited to live the law of consecration by signing over your property to the church through the bishop. He would then return to you, in most cases, what you donated, sometimes with a surplus. But it was no longer just your possession, it was your stewardship. Number one, I think that's super interesting. Uh, Have you thought about what that would have been like to live in 1831 and to, to live that law of consecration like that where, you know, you give your property and, and all your possessions kind of over to the church, over to the bishop, and then he lot you your stewardship. I think that would be super interesting. I also think it would be very difficult. Uh, but that is the covenant that we make. The other thing is, well, I stopped and I thought, what is the difference between owning something or possessing it and then being a steward of it? And... I think it's a really important uh, distinction I remember in a lot of my like religion classes at BYU this was a a concept that we talked about a lot and discussed was was stewardship that we're supposed to be good stewards that's why we're here on this earth is to learn how to be good stewards but also what does that stewardship mean uh there's a line in the second paragraph that says well let's see where I where, Okay, we're gonna read the whole thing because I can't find where it starts. Today, the pro- procedures are different, but the principles of consecration and stewardship are still vital to the Lord's work. Consider these words from Elder Quentin L. Cook. We live in perilous times when many believe we are not accountable to God and that we do not have personal responsibility or stewardship for ourselves or others. Many in the world are focused on self-gratification and do not believe they are their brother's keeper. In the church, however, we believe that these stewardships are a sacred trust. And... I have seen people who, who I mean, I think we all have. I think we've all seen people who live the, the self gratified life. None of those people are examples to me of the life I want to live. I mean, have you seen people that, that live that way where they're just trying to gratify their desires, their lusts, their their wants, and they're they're always in it for themselves. They never really show responsibility for you know what they're what they steward over or what their responsibilities are. I mean, are those people that, that you find as your examples? Because for me, I don't, I can't think of a single person like that. The people that I look up to and want to pattern my life after often continue to take on new responsibilities. And I keep thinking how in the world are they balancing their lives? How are they doing it all? And without fail, the answer has always been, they're doing it through Christ. Uh, They recognize, they learn the pattern of stewardship and how the manage those responsibilities, both for their life, as well as those in who they're responsible for or accountable for. And they learn that process to be able to then gain further stewardship and and further roles. Uh, I think the same could be said for how we progress in this life. I know for me, right? So first I got, I got married. Well, I guess first I had to be accountable for myself. I had to be a steward of my own life and I had to do that well. Or at least well enough, and then uh, because if I hadn't, I would not have been able to combine my life with Lex's life. I would not have been a, in a place to be able to be married. So that was the first step: was to be able to be like my own steward and to really take my life seriously, not just mess around, but to to recognize the responsibilities I had. And as I did that, and Lex had also done the same on her end, where she was you know a good steward for her life. When we made the covenant in the temple and were sealed together. We became stewards for one another, where I was responsible to her, and she was responsible to me, and then we're also responsible for each other, right? No longer were my actions just my actions. My actions affect her, just like her actions affect me. And for anyone who's been married, you know, it's a very, it's not just like a easy process. There are a lot of difficulties and complications that come through marriage, but it's part of the process and it's beautiful and you learn a lot and through that process right we got into a flow of understanding we were we worked on our marriage and we worked together to be accountable to one another and then through that obviously made the decision to uh, start trying to have children and then we were given Flynn and we've become stewards for Flynn um it's it's interesting because it's, it's tough for me to see Flynn, like obviously he's my son, and I love him, but I always think too, like it's not that he's just mine, he's, I really do see him like he's my brother who I am accountable for. I am accountable to the Lord for teaching him and helping him to develop into a man one day, to be able to make covenants before the Lord and understand those covenants, not just go through the motions, but to really understand at a level that he can make those covenants and then keep them and become accountable for himself and, and hopefully be able to find a a lovely young woman one day who will also be keeping her covenants and they can make covenants together and, and start their family. And uh, so I don't ever see Flynn as just like, he's mine. He's my baby boy, and and that's all he is. Like I, I, it's inseparable to me that he is also my brother, and obviously I can't like you know treat him like a bro, like an earthly brother, but as a celestial brother, I do view myself as a steward for for him at this time and for Maggie as well, because uh, obviously she joined in my in my stewardship roles, and I am responsible especially at this time in their life um, for rearing and help raising them in the way that I believe the Lord would want me to raise them. Uh, my responsibility is to make sure that they understand their responsibilities to the Lord. And if I can do that well, then I know that I will be able to account to the, to God that I took care of my stewardship roles. And so I think the difference between ownership to me and, and stewardship is ownership, ownership kind of, to me feels more of like a, well, it's mine. It's mine. And no one really gets a say on what happens. I'm not really accountable to anyone because it's mine. I'm responsible. And what I, what I want goes, but stewardship is no, I'm, I am responsible. And in many ways, I have to make the decision, but I have to account to someone else, which in this case, it's obviously God. I have to account to God. And For me, as I recognize that, as I recognize the relationship we have, not only to one another, but to our families, to our friends, to in our callings, right, right, like right now, my stewardship is uh, over the 16 year olds in the ward for teaching them. I'm specifically responsible for, for teaching them each, well, every other Sunday when it's my turn, of course, because like I said, we're doing kind of a weird pattern right now, but it is my responsibility to teach them the lesson and come follow me. And help them to feel the spirit and supplement what they're learning in the home. That is my stewardship. That is what I have to account to the Lord for. I do not hold the stewardship of like the elders quorum president. So I'm not responsible for the elders in the ward. I am responsible for teaching the 16-year-olds the the lesson from come follow me. and, And like I said helping them to feel the spirit. So I think as we understand our stewardship roles, it really helps to know what we're accountable for. Also, for me, it helps me to focus what I need to be setting goals for in my life. Uh, Because I think I've discussed this before, like I love setting goals. And it's really important to me to do that. But there's so many goals that I have, and so many things I want to accomplish in my life that it can be overwhelming when I think, oh my gosh, there's so much I have to get done, and I'm never going to be able to get to it all. But to just stop and look at what my stewardship is right now. Like who do I need to be responsible to and who am I responsible for? And as I look at that and make a priority list, that really helps me to rein in my goals for right now to know where I need to be focusing everything. And so really I would sum all of that up, all that kind of rambling thoughts on what the difference between ownership and stewardship is to say it to me, it's extremely important that we understand and recognize what our stewardship roles are in this life at this time, because they change and our responsibilities change and they should change, but they should also uh, be increasing. Because as we learn how to be good stewards over one thing, then God will use us to be stewards in other places in his vineyard. That is the path of progression. That's how we learn to become as he is, which is the God uh, of the universe. And so lofty goals, lofty, lofty goals. So in the second section, God gave a pattern for avoiding deception. With many people claiming spiritual manifestations, the early saints were concerned about uh, being deceived. How could they tell who was accepted of God? In Doctrine and Covenants, sections 52, the Lord gave a helpful pattern. How can you apply this pattern to detect false messages in the world? So th- there are a couple verses, there are two verses uh, in particular that I really liked from this section. One was in verse, it was section 52, verse 15. It reads, Wherefore, he that prayeth, whose spirit is contrite, the same is accepted of me if he obey mine ordinances. The Lord, uh, he doesn't accept every behavior, and he doesn't accept every action. I think it's really important because the world is telling us that you can do anything and be accepted. You should just be accepted for who you are and and you can do anything, and no one should judge you and stuff like that. Now, while I do think it's not our stewardship, going back to that principle, to judge others for how they're living their life, uh in a in a godly sense, right? We can learn from people's behaviors and patterns, and we're supposed to do that. It's actually in uh, if you remember my podcast from last year in the Book of Mormon, we I talked about this, that we are supposed to be judges on behaviors, not judging the person, but to judge the behavior because if we're not judging behavior, how can we be making the right decisions in our life? But, uh, but so further on than me, just that, from 15, what points out to me is that God, like, how can, okay, in the reverse, right? Because it says, he that prayeth, Whose spirit is contrite, the same is accepted. If if you can be accepted, could that that would have to mean you can be rejected, right? It would have to. Otherwise, this is a useless verse. Like God God would not be giving this because this would just be obvious. Like everyone's accepted, right? Therefore, if there are uh, things that we can be doing, right? Like he that prayeth, whose spirit is contrite, those are two things we can do. He says that that means uh, the same who person who does that is accepted of God if they obey his ordinances. So, if that is true, then it also logically follows that God does not accept every action we make, which I know that sounds obvious, but like I said, the world doesn't seem to think so. That's why I have to point this out. I have to. In verse 20, and the days have come according to men's faith, it shall be done unto them. Our faith determines our outcome. One of the most important principles uh, and things to understand about faith Again, and the days have come, according to men's faith, it shall be done unto them. Uh, if you go back to the Bible dictionary where it talks about faith, it says that faith is not just believing something. It is not just, it has to be something that is focused. Uh, the belief has to be focused on the Savior and it has to be true. You cannot have faith in something that's false. Elder, Elder Bednar gave a talk about this too, where he said it's impossible to have faith in something that's not real. It has to be real. And it also has to be centered in Christ. That's from the Bible dictionary. But our faith determines our outcomes. If you believe that you, uh, for example, I believed with my full heart that if I was doing what I needed, if I was doing the best I could, and seeking for my eternal companion, I would find her. That was that was both a hope, but it was also faith. It was it was faith because it was a belief coupled with action. I was doing things to make that happen. I did not just sit at home every day and expect God to bring a woman into my life. I went out and was searching and finding, and I made plenty of mistakes along the way. There were girls that I really thought were, they were my eternal companion and I was wrong, but I had to learn that by dating them. I couldn't just be like, go on a date and say, give me a sign. If that's the one I had to learn for myself and it can, it's tough. Like Let's just be honest about it. Faith can be super tough because through faith is failure. There's also going to be failure. God expects us to fail. But, and I'm, you know, I'm only 28, so I'm not going to act like I'm, you know, this deep well of wisdom. However, in those 28 years, I have learned for a portion that failure has the greatest lessons for me in my life. I have learned more through my failures than I have through my successes. And I remember my failures far better than my successes. And that is the process of faith. I think the process of faith is also the process of, of failure. And it's like in a video game where you're learning how to complete the level without dying. Uh, we'll use Mario, for example, right? Like Mario is a platform game and you go through it and you're trying to, to get to the end. And sometimes you get to these bad guys and you get hit by a hammer and you're done. And you you, you lose the level and you have to start again. Well, through faith... That's the same thing. We are going through life and we're not always going to get it right. We're not supposed to either. Sometimes I think we're far too hard on ourselves because we expect to be for perfectionists the first time. That is a misunderstanding of faith and it's also completely against the plan. The plan was that we were going to fail. It was, it's literally built into it. Otherwise, there would be no need for Christ. And so this, this principle in 20 is so important. According to men's faith, it shall be done unto them. If you If you believe and it is centered in Christ then it will be done unto you and you have to believe that no matter how long it takes, even if it's not in this life. You have to believe that because if you don't, then you don't have the faith sufficient enough to make it happen. In this next section, I can turn to the Lord when I am hurt by others' choices. How true, how true. So this is, um, I'm pulling from story. the story. The story was that there was Lehman Copley. Now, if you remember from, I believe it was last lesson, maybe the lesson before, I can't remember when, uh, but if you, if you read in Saints, it talked about how uh, Lehman Copley was last week because my mom disagreed. That's right. Okay, so it was Lehman Copley, Sidney Rigdon, and Parley P. Pratt who were sent on a mission to the Shakers. And Lehman Copley was a Shaker who then converted to the Latter-day Saints. Well, along his journey, after that mission, he comes back and he wavers in his faith and he leaves. Now, the problem was that he had a large parcel of land that he had promised to the church that they would be, the saints coming from the east would be able to settle there and start building their homes. So the saints had actually come and they had started settling there right and they started building up stuff and then he's like you know what everyone off my property uh no more so he just kicks people off they have nowhere to go these are the saints so i remember in my dnc class in byu that the teacher uh i can see his face i can't remember his name his brother and it starts with an a anyway uh he would he always called him lehman the lemon is that is that what he called it lehman lehman Yeah, Lehman Copley, Lehman the lemon. That's right, and that's how I would always remember for for the test (laughs) which person Lehman was. Well, anyways, so yeah, Lehman was a real lemon, and a lot of saints were hurt by his choices. So some verses that stick out to me from this lesson in verse fifty or section fifty-four, verse three. And if your brethren desire to escape their enemies, let them repent of all their sins and become truly humble before me, and contrite. I love this because of our own lives, like. This is super ad- valuable advice. I feel like that we should focus on of how to escape Satan. Satan is our enemy. And he often puts people in our path that feel like the enemy, but really he's the enemy. And and we should always keep that in mind the best we can. Um, a lesson I was taught this week and I won't like go too long. Cause I swear I've shared this story before, but just in case. So we had had a, um, a bad experience with, with our neighbors, uh, a neighbor that lives across the street from us, where they called the cop because of uh, because of a car parked on our property, and it was like this big deal, and I, it was frustrating because I felt like there were a million better ways to have handled it than the way in which it was handled. Which, like I said, don't call the cops, just come over and talk to me because I'm an agreeable person. And uh, and there there's other bits in this story, but so I had some like bad feelings and bad blood for this neighbor because I was like, like now you've put me at odds because you just called the cops on me, the cops come over and talk to us, but we were in, we were completely in our rights for what had happened. And the cop had explained that and was like, just, you know, just, I have to, this is my job. I got to come and be here to make sure nothing, whatever. Uh, but I was super frustrated. I had a really tough time and I had some bitter feelings and I would see this neighbor, you know, they'd be outside and I'd be outside and I just would, pretend that they didn't exist that was my way of handling it. it was like I was like no you know I don't want to have a good relationship with you you clearly didn't want to have one with me well it turns out over to like you know eventually that neighbor did come over and talk to me and uh, we had a very frank and good discussion was able to talk through it and essentially apologize for both sides for the misunderstanding and that very neighbor is the same one that helped me pull the stumps out this uh this this weekend and and then you know to say thank you, Lex made them uh, a loaf of bread because she makes incredible bread and we took it over and and dropped it off. And it just was so, so such a different relationship that we have now than how I felt after that whole experience with the cops. And it, it was something that made me realize, you know, they felt for a time like these neighbors were my enemy because of, you know, their actions and the part in the story that I played and stuff like it felt like they were my enemy and they were against me and I needed to be wary of them and stuff. But, But really, Satan was obviously the enemy the whole time and bred feelings of anger and animosity in my heart for sure. I assume in their heart because, like I said, the way that it went down. And I think that often, too often is how our relationships are, that we view each other as the enemy. And and look, we we all do terrible things to each other. It's part of the human experience. But I think I have found more often than not, that we are all actually just really decent people who sometimes make really terrible mistakes and sometimes just do not know how to fix them. And honestly, sometimes the best thing to do is just to to go over and, and offer that olive branch of forgiveness and of peace and amends. And it's amazing how much better it feels to have a new friend rather than a new enemy. And so I love this verse. If your brethren desire to escape their enemies, let them repent of all their sins and become truly humble before me and contrite. Sometimes that humility does involve you being the one to go to the person that wronged you. And uh, like I said, I was not the first one to, I was not the one to make the first move. This neighbor was. And technically they didn't, you know, apologize the way I felt like they should. Not that it matters, but (laughs) if I was going to be technical about it, they never said the words, I'm sorry. But they did come over in humility and and essentially seek for that olive branch and I was willing to be humble enough on my end to not be dumb about it and to just keep a grudge for for no reason. and now we have new friends. And so as we are humble and as we repent, even if you know the scenario doesn't play out like the way it did for me and my neighbor, we are promised from the Lord that we, he will help us escape our enemies. And verse 10. And again, be patient in tribulation until I come. Behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me. And they who have sought me early shall find rest to their souls. Even so, amen. Some of the toughest words to follow are these words right here to me. Be patient until the Lord comes. That is that is some tough counsel. Sometimes it's like, I just want it now. I want peace now. I want the reward now. Uh, I'm not saying that in general. I mean that like for me, that's how I feel. Sometimes I really am. I'm like, why is it not here now? And these, this scripture helps remind me that we need to be patient. We're commanded to be patient. And that is like, we should be working on having an abiding faith. That is the test that we're going through. And like, we know the promise we were promised these blessings. So it's not like we have anything to fear, but we do have to have faith. And that is the, obviously the test. That is the test of this life. Finally, in the last section, blessed are the pure in heart. Uh, I'm just going to share two of these verses and I think we'll be done. In section 56, verse 14, it says, Behold, thus saith the Lord unto my people, you have many things to do and to repent of. For behold, your sins have come up unto me and are not pardoned because you seek to counsel in your own ways. I have been guilty of this, this last part where it says because you've counseled in your own ways. I have definitely been been guilty of that where I will overly counsel in my own head of what I should be doing or, or how I should handle a situation And it's so foolish because all I have to do is get on my knees and pray and ask God. Now, he does expect us, obviously, to ponder in our own hearts. However, I do feel like the process should kind of immediately involve the Lord, right? Like in the perfect process of a challenge or a difficulty that arises, it would be first on my knees, say, Lord, I need your help guiding me through this situation. I'm going to ponder it out. I just wanted to let you know the situation at hand. Then go about pondering it and and then come back to him and say, you know, Here's what I've got through my ponderings and through the Holy Ghost. Here's what I believe. Can we counsel together now that I've thought about it? Um, I think too often I just sit and I think about it over and over again, and I kind of fail to come to the Lord on it because I'm like, well, I don't want to trouble him with this, which is dumb since we are commanded to go to him with all things. Like That's how we develop a relationship, right? And so don't make that foolish error. That's what I'm getting at. It's something that I need to do. And I would recommend you <laughs> do as well as to, to don't make that foolish. Go to the Lord with with all of our our problems and our trials. And I, I promise that great things come because of that. Finally, in verse uh, 16 and 17, Woe unto you rich men that will not give your substance to the poor, for your riches will canker your souls. And this shall be your lamentation of the day of visitation and of judgment and of, indign- oh, yikes, and of in- indignation. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and my soul is not saved. Woe unto you poor men whose hearts are not broken, whose spirits are not contrite, and whose bellies are not satisfied, and whose hands are not stayed from laying hold upon other men's goods, whose eyes are full of greediness, and who will not labor with your own hands. Both the poor and the rich are called out right here by the Lord, and it's done in love. And I feel like that is how the Lord's judgments always are for us. Too often, I will look at other people, I will look at like, you know, focus on their faults and then be like, see, they're doing this, if they would just do this better, then it would solve all their problems. The Lord would take me and say, Dalton, I don't super care about what they're doing in this scenario because we're focusing on you right now. Here's what you need to be doing. And if someone were to be like, ha, see, he would immediately follow by saying, here's what you need to be doing. Too often we focus on one another because it's a lot easier to focus on other people's uh, sins, weaknesses than our own, right? That self-reflection can be a very difficult process and it can be easier to procrastinate doing so by looking at other people's faults and flaws. Also, it can be a lot easier to see other people's faults and flaws because it's typically something that it's like bugging us. And so we're hyper aware of that versus what we're doing to cause contention, strife, malice, and other people. We should always remember that the way the Lord counsels is to us as individuals. He doesn't take us as groups. Uh, I mean, he certainly can. Obviously, it's his prerogative. He is God. But but always, it's about the individual. He takes us in as one of what we need specifically, because you and I might need the same counsel, right? We might both have the similar weaknesses. However, the counsel to you will be different than the counsel for me. I think this is a valuable lesson also to take into into just all of our lives, but in general in church as well. When someone is giving a lesson, I think it can be easy to say, well, this lesson doesn't really apply to me. Well, not so. I think if we seek hard enough, if we listen with the Spirit, the Spirit will show us how through someone else's experience that maybe we're like, well, that's not the experience I've had. The Spirit can help translate that for how it can help us and improve our lives. I've done this, and not always, and I still need to work on this, but I have done this at times, and I've had incredible Sabbath day experiences where I've gone to church and there's someone teaching a lesson who I'm like, you know, I'll, I'll say this as I think it, which does make me a terrible person, but I've been in lessons where I'm like, I would teach this way better than they would. I know it's not humble and I know I'll probably be in spirit prison for that, but that's just the truth, right? That's the thoughts I've had unfiltered. And then I am immediately chastised by the spirit who tells me that, that I couldn't teach it as like, I would not be able to teach it as well because the spirit is the one guiding the lesson. And just because I might have skills in one area where the teacher doesn't, like I said, back in the beginning, right? The Lord uses us in whatever gifts we have. It's the spirit. That's a real teacher. It's not the person. And so as we separate, as we remember that, as I remember that for sure, I have had incredible experiences where the spirit has been my teacher, not the person and all of their weaknesses and flaws, but I'm also able to come closer to that person and recognize that they are someone who the Lord was able to act through to touch me in my life, which makes them a friend. And I feel like that really is the, uh, the ultimate lesson for me is that we need each other, all of us, we all need each other and the Lord makes it that way. Thank heavens he does because otherwise we'd all be able to sit at home all alone, And uh, never sit there wanting for life to get back to normal where we get to see each other and uh, enjoy company without being in masks. So that's what I got from this lesson. And I think that's all I really had to share. I do love the improving your personal study of keeping a journal. Something that I haven't done as well since my mission. I did the best on my mission where I had, I think I filled three journals in my time on my mission of just personal study. Not not journals of like my day-to-days, but just literally from scripture study. And it's because every single day I was getting little small ideas and insights, and I have not done as well post-mission. So something that I need to be thinking about of how do I introduce that back into my life? I do a good job of taking notes, do a good job of like, you know, studying that way and highlighting and marking, but not as a good job when it comes to the journal taking from study. Uh, Thank you for inviting me to your family room discussion. What ideas, questions, or insights did you have from Doctrine and Covenants sections 51 to 57? Until we meet again, have a blessed week.